0: Jesus does not say, by your miracles, the world will know that you are my disciples. Nor does he say, by your preaching, the world will know that you are my disciples. What does he say? Yeah, by your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. to be with everyone here tonight. There's a a story of a man who was living all alone on a deserted island for years and years. He was stranded there for for a long time, and eventually this man was rescued by a group of others. And when he was rescued, he said, oh, before we leave this island, I want to show you uh, my, my hut that I made myself. And so he takes them over to this structure. And he says, see, I built this with my own two hands. And they looked admiringly at the structure. And he says, I want to show you another building. And he takes them over to another building. And he says, see, this is the church building that I made where I've been worshiping all these years. And and, uh, and, and again, he says, I built this with my own two hands. And then off they see another third building away to the side. And so they ask this man, uh, what's this building over here? And he says, "That's the church that I used to go to," and and it's a great picture of how we can be divided and disunified with ourselves sometimes. And the classic story of the American Christian is two cars, a lot of stories of going from church to church to church, and a pretty sad story of disunity. My, my opening question for you is, how, how do you respond when you see all of the different religious divisions that are out there? We, we know there's thousands of denominations of all different stripes. How do you, how do you feel when you, when you see these? And I think all of us probably have some degree of sadness and disappointment and confusion over that. Um, I personally know of groups that have a church, uh, an Indian church, that divided over carpet color they couldn't get along over what color of carpet to have in their sanctuary and so they divided over that the Catholic Church for a while had three different popes They couldn't get along and sort that out and the the history of the church is littered with division at all levels I want to ask today what you personally are doing to establish unity in the church and what I'd like us to do is look primarily at one passage here. So this is a very well-known passage, but in your Bibles or devices, if you could look at Psalm 133 with me. Psalm 133 is a very short psalm. It's only three verses. I'm going to read all of it. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments it is like the dew of hermon descending upon the mountain upon the mountains of zion for there the lord commanded the blessing life forevermore let's pray again father i pray that you would help us to experience this goodness and this pleasant experience of dwelling together in unity. I pray that we would learn from your scriptures about what your heart beats for. And I pray all these things in the name of the one who died for one body, not two, amen. So let's, let's consider for a moment this psalm and some of the context of the psalm. If you look at the superscription of this psalm, it should say a song of ascent of David. And I think most of us know that is original to the Hebrew. This is not added by later publishers. So this is a, a Song of ascent, and probably a lot of us know what the Song of ascent represents. It's a, a collection of psalms. starts in Psalm 120, and it goes through Psalm 134, that are songs that were sung by Jewish people when they would go to pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they're called Songs of Ascent because... Jerusalem and especially the temple are up high. So you have to ascend to go to the, the temple into Jerusalem. So it's, it's like roughly 2,500 feet in elevation. So it's a little bit of a hike. And, and so in terms of, of context, here we know that Jewish people were supposed to go to Jerusalem for three pilgrimages per year. They were supposed to go for Passover. They were supposed to go for Pentecost and then the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Okay, so they have these three aggregating pilgrimages that they were supposed to go to. And as they're going up and traveling these paths, they would be singing these psalms. It's a very very beautiful picture to imagine these throngs of people, thousands and thousands of people going up these paths, up the elevation to get to Jerusalem, and they're singing. And so I want you to picture the site, people from the tribe of, of Simeon, people from the tribe of Manasseh, people from the tribe of Zebulun, all these different thousands and thousands of, of families, all these people traveling together singing. And this is where David apparently is just captivated by the beauty of this sight of all these people who are going up to Jerusalem. And he, he composes this psalm. I don't know how many of you have had experiences like this where you're just captivated by throngs of people going for some kind of common place of worship, some kind of common mission. When I was in school many years ago now, uh, 20, 25 years ago, I would go uh, uh, quite frequently to a conference. It was actually the largest Christian student conference in America at the time. It's no longer. 20,000 students would, would gather, and they would do it over their winter break. So they'd actually, we'd be giving up a good portion of our winter break, And 20,000 of us would pack in to a a facility that held all 20,000 of us in one big room. This was in Illinois. And the conference was primarily geared at global missions. But we would come together and sing our lungs out. And you can imagine 20,000 college and grad student age people singing their hearts out. In a, in a facility, like the place would shake. I mean, it was just, it was awesome. And I remember just the, this feeling of like walking up into this giant structure and the goosebumps would start to, to, to raise here when you just anticipate what's going to happen here. And everyone was just fired up for this cause of seeing the gospel go to all the nations. So David similarly is, is overpowered by the beauty of this site. And so the very first word, both in English and in Hebrew, is behold, okay, behold, uh, hine or idu in the Septuagint. So he's saying here, look, pay attention, see. This was a, a, a visible sight here where David's like, see this? You see all these people. You see this stream of people going up to Jerusalem. This is beautiful. This is unity. There are a lot of people who look at all the divisions of various denominations and church groups and they're disappointed i think i think we all are they they know that jesus prays for unity in john 17 this his longest prayer that we have recorded before shortly before his crucifixion and they think okay jesus prays for unity we obviously don't have unity it's, if anything it's getting worse and so they say, hmm, what's the solution to this? It seems like Jesus is praying for something that isn't happening. What's the, what's the, the explanation for why this prayer apparently isn't being answered? And they make up this, this answer. This answer is they make up a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. Okay? I'm sure a lot of you have heard this term. So people will say, oh, okay, Jesus here was praying for... Actually, the unity of the invisible church, because see, the visible church is so divided and so scattered, and that's not going to happen, and so we just need to relax and chill out, because Jesus' invisible church is united, and so we're okay. Yes, there's divisions in the visible church, but let's just accept that. Now, I'm going to contend that that is a terrible rationalization. That's a way to explain away failure in a very dangerous manner. And in general, rationalizations are very dangerous, especially when it comes to something biblical. You know, you you hear this in different settings. Someone will say, oh, my marriage isn't working out. We're not in love anymore. We've decided to get a divorce and, and separate. And a lot of people will say, oh, that's too bad. And yeah, just make the best of it. But I hope when you hear that, your your blood boils and your, your heart stirs and you say, no, no, don't accept that. You fight for your marriage covenant. You don't just accept that and rationalize that away. In a world where divorce is continuing to, to grow and all kinds of sexual deviancy is on the rise, I hope that we don't just rationalize it away. In John 17, Jesus is not talking about invisible unity. There's many ways you can see this. One way you can see this is he says in verse 20 that the world may know that you have sent me. Okay, so he he says, I want the church to be unified so that the world sees this and believes that I am not just a man, but I have been sent by God. And clearly that is something that requires some sort of visible attestation. It is a city on a hill. It is something that, Jesus wants to be persuasive. So just like there's no such thing as an invisible Christian, the real church is visible. I'm not saying there's not some elements of truth to a concept of of people who are saved who are not parts of churches. I'm not saying that, but generally speaking, we should be very careful to rationalize this away and say, ah, this is just the invisible church that Jesus is talking about. So my first point, is that biblical unity is visible for the world to see. Okay, so David is saying here, Behold, look, see, pay attention, be blown away by this sight. Look at this throng, this multitude of people. David's unity was visible. It was something that you could say, behold to. And in the same way, we should have a unity that we should be able to say, behold to. Next, David describes this site, this uh, amazing site of all these, these pilgr- pilgrims on this Song of Ascent as good and pleasant. He uses two adjectives there, good and pleasant. Okay, so, so why does he use these two words, good and pleasant? Uh, it's, it's actually a great combination if you think about it because there's a lot of things in life that are good but they're not pleasant. Okay, so like getting a colonoscopy is good, but it's not pleasant, okay? I'm actually, it's kind of sad. Like my doctor told me recently, I'm pushing 50, and he's like, we got to start talking about you getting a colonoscopy. And I'm like, oh no, I can't believe this. I'm getting old. Um, haven't had it yet, but um, that's, not, that's not pleasant. I can't imagine that being pleasant. On the other hand, there are things like eating French fries, eating a huge ice cream sundae. That's very pleasant, It's very enjoyable, but it's not necessarily good. It's not necessarily something that is going to make you a better human being. Here, with biblical unity, we have the fusion of good and pleasant. Isn't that nice? It's it's nice that we have things that are both good and pleasant, right? That's often in our lives we're having to, to choose between what's good or what's pleasant, right? A lot of temptations are trying to wade through all of that. But here, David is saying, this is something that is good and pleasant. Uh, I have worked over many years to try to develop my taste buds so that what is good for me is what is pleasant for me as well. And it actually can be done. It's taken many, many years, but we have good progress. Uh, At our home, if you ever come to our home, you will see that when my wife puts out Uh, a plate of broccoli, there's a mad rush to take that broccoli. People love broccoli in our home. Same thing with Brussels sprouts and asparagus, things that a lot of people don't enjoy eating. We love it uh, because we have cultivated our taste buds to make what is good also what is pleasant. Okay, so David here is telling us that this concept of brothers dwelling together in unity is both good and pleasant. Now, I think we, most of us here know the story of David's life. David was a man who had sons who did not dwell together in unity. Uh, David's life was tragically marked, his family life was tragically marked by a lot of division. One brother, one son, Absalom, killed another brother, Amnon, who earlier raped a sister, Tamar, David knew firsthand the bitterness and how unpleasant division could be. His world was torn up by a lack of unity. And I have a feeling, I can't prove this, this is pure speculation, but I have a feeling that he probably had great memories of being a boy when he was in Jesse's home, and we know he had a big family, and his brothers and his sisters all sitting around their table laughing, talking about what they did, their, their exploits in the day. And I have a feeling that David knew very, very well from a good father, Jesse, what a healthy home life was like. So here on the one hand, David has probably the memories of a very pleasant upbringing from Jesse, but then on the other hand has seen firsthand the, the pain and the hardship of division. In fact, if you look at the history of Israel, if you look in the book of Genesis, we see that there's a lot of stories of brothers and relatives and families who don't get along. We saw in Genesis that Abraham and Lot are not able to dwell together in unity. We see that Jacob and Esau are not able to dwell together in unity. Uh, Jacob has to run away. It's, it's sad. Um, it's very sad when we think about how much division there was even in this people that becomes Israel. Probably many of us in this room, I'm sure many of us in this room, can think about our own home life growing up and hopefully have many fond memories of just beautiful times when you are with your family dwelling together in unity. Today, I got a picture. We have a family chat on my side of the family, and my parents sent over a picture of me when I was five and my brother when he was four. We were dressed up as, as uh, superheroes, and uh, it brought up all these memories, and I thought, ah, oh, those were great days. I just, I just remember so well those days of playing together and laughing and enjoying life. Tomorrow... We'll be driving to my brother's house in New Hampshire to celebrate his son's birthday, uh, who uh, is is turning one, uh, and we'll be there with my extended family. And I know it's going to be a great time. It's going to be a very special time to be together in unity. I want to focus, though, on the word dwell here. Okay, so he says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is the regular word for dwell, yeshav. Here, David does not say here in this passage, he doesn't say how good and pleasant it is when brothers walk next to each other in unity. He doesn't say how good and pleasant it is when brothers talk to one another in unity or how the, when they greet each other. He could have said any of those things, right? Especially in the context of a pilgrimage. He uses a much stronger word. He uses this word dwell. Okay, so we all know that it is quite easy, we can do it right here in in our congregation tonight, to greet one another in harmony and unity, give holy kiss, you can shake hands, you can hug, you can do all those kinds of things, very pleasant. You can go work out with someone, you can exercise, you can sweat, you can work in the office with someone. You can do a lot of things with someone in a harmonious, unified way, but dwelling with someone else is a much more difficult endeavor, much more difficult endeavor. Uh, it tests you. It tests you tremendously. We have had many experiences in our home of people dwelling in our home in unity and also not in unity. Uh, this past week, my, my, my mother has been here getting ready for this birthday. And I love it when she stays at our home. She just she adds so much value. She helps around the house, uh, plays with the children, uh, cooks great Indian food, uh, tells Laura and I to go off and have dates together. Uh, when I come home, my, my, my mom likes to invest. And so we talk business for a long time. She wants to know all that's going on and even tied the company I work in. So I tell her about our companies and what's happening and she loves to laugh. Uh, I love to hear her laugh. It's, um, it's beautiful, it's, it's very, very nice. I know what she likes and doesn't like. She knows what I like and don't like. We've worked through a lot of things, so it's very easy. We have a, a common purpose, uh, the health of the family, Eventide, so we know, we know how, to, how to relate to one another. Uh, I've been very impressed actually with some of the families and some of the households at Oakland Street. I've noticed a lot of people have been sleeping over at uh, guests and things like that at, others, <laughs> at other people's houses. It's great, it's, it's wonderful to see that kind of hospitality. But, and there's a big butt at this uh, point here, a lot of people, and we have seen many, many people right here on Oakland Street, struggle with living in community. It has been very stressful for many people. They would not use the words how good and pleasant it is to dwell in community. They would use the words how awkward and unpleasant or stressful and painful or fill in the blanks. There have been lots and lots of examples of this. We've had many people over the years and a variety of followers of the way places, uh, churches come and go. And I think it's safe to say that the difference between success when someone comes and lives in one of our our settings is if there's unity, it's going to succeed. And if there's not, it's not. It's very, very simple if you boil it down in that way. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what has made the difference in your own experience with people inside of your household, your dorm, your apartment, your condo, your house, whatever it is, what has made the difference between something being good and pleasant versus awkward and unpleasant or tense and difficult. And I will will challenge you that it is probably unity that is the, the, the differentiator there. So David is saying here, that if you can do it in unity, though, it's great. That it is amazing. It is good and it's pleasant and you're gonna you're gonna love it. It's gonna be it's gonna be a joy to you. Okay, so a lot of people, when they talk about church unity, what they really mean, if you if you peel this back, and I'm gonna talk about it more in a little bit, what they really mean is an organizational unity. They mean like an institutional unity. There's there's a, a handful of speakers now that I've been following who have, they're on this kind of unity kick, and they are, they're saying like, why can't, I'm, I'm going to over, way oversimplify, but they're saying something like, why can't the Baptists and the Methodists and the, and the Presbyterians and everybody just come together and, and effectively put away differences and live out this unity that, that Jesus calls us to? And what they functionally mean is they want to have a merger of all these different congregations and settings but I'm going to contend that a mere organizational unity is not a biblical unity it is a component of it but it's not the totality of what biblical unity is because unless unity is relational unless it is something where you can say I can dwell together with you then it's not actually the, the Davidic Psalm 133 unity that the Bible is, is calling forth here why is that? Because in your home, the real you comes out. Isn't that true? Like the real you, your your likes, your dislikes come out. How you treat other people, how you spend unstructured time together, uh, the real you comes out. I guarantee you, you will not know the real side of a person unless you have lived with them. Right? This is this is. Uh, I'm seeing some some. Some violent shaking of heads here. That's good. Um, because I think there's been some, some eye-opening experiences that, that we've had here. There are, there are a couple of very common errors when we talk about the subject of unity. The, the Roman Catholic error is saying, okay, yeah, see, we have the Pope. We have this hundreds of years of history. We have this single organization. It all rolls up to our headquarters in the Vatican. See, we have unity. We have unity. Well, then you go visit their churches, and you realize that, as one example, the church believes that you're not supposed to use contraception. More than 90% of Roman Catholics disagree with that and do use contraception. And you think, hmm, this doesn't really feel like the unity is particularly profound here when the leaders are so disconnected from most of the members. So a mere organizational unity is not sufficient. And then you have more of a Protestant air, which says, let a thousand flowers bloom. Let them bloom, let them blossom, let scatter seed here and there. It's fine that we have this church over here, and this type of church over here, and this type of church over here, and that type of church over here, and let them all just just kind of roll with it. Can they meaningfully dwell with each other? Is there anything like a dwelling together across those congregations? No way. But there's still a sense of we can all coexist. One of the the real liabilities of, of living in a capitalist society, and I'm not knocking capitalism here, but I will say it's at least a danger here that we have to be aware of, is the mindset of of any basically any business is that competition is a good thing and the way that we kind of show our our greatness is having lots of entities compete with one with another and whoever has the best product and the best best service wins in the end they gain more market share and it's all about like fostering competition right and so in in the United States for good reason there has been incredible prosperity because of this competitive model. It works ni- very nicely in the business world. Businesses that don't succeed will go bankrupt. Businesses that have, have success and good products will gain market share. But that mindset has also come into how people think about churches. And in subtle ways, I think a lot of people think in the same way. Just like, let there be lots of plumbers, let there be lots of, of IT vendors, let there be lots of this and that. Well. A lot of people can slip into that and say, let there be a bunch of churches and let them all compete one with another. And that's actually a good thing. That's normative. That's healthy. If you have the real mindset of the New Testament, you will understand that the goal is not competition. The goal is unity. The goal is cooperation and a oneness instead of a competition mindset. Okay, so with this, I'm gonna now give my next point here, which is biblical unity is theological, practical, relational, and organizational. Okay, so there's four dimensions to biblical unity. Very important. Theological, practical, relational, organizational. Okay, all four. Okay, so this is what's kind of sad. Before I get into this definition, I will say there is division around how to define unity. Okay, sad, but true. There is tremendous division around how you define unity. And the problem is, is that if you don't define unity correctly, you get disunity. All right? So, this is why it's actually really important for us to spend a little bit of time here thinking about what biblical unity is like. Okay? So, four dimensions. I'm going to repeat them again. So important. Theological, practical, relational, organizational. Okay? So... If you don't get this definition right, like I said, you can probably cause more harm than good. Okay, so, so let's walk through each of these. Theological is the first one. So there are a lot of people out here. I think uh, so many people out, out in the world will say, like, see, what we really need to do is we need to find some minimal set of doctrines that we can all agree on. And that will be our rallying cry. And that will be the basis of our unity. Okay, so like a classic example would be the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. And they'll say, like, see, all these different churches agree on this. Let's just have that be our basis for unity. And we will be content with that. And we, don't need, we, can, we can kind of let other differences slide. There's a, a very famous line that you hear a lot. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Have you ever heard that? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, and all things charity. And okay, there's aspects of truth to that statement, but in general, it's misguided for reasons we'll talk about. So they say, oh, see, the essentials are the Trinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, Jesus dying for our sins, maybe a couple of other things, and that's it, that's all we need. And everything else, if we try to advocate for those things, we're gonna create disunity because We've, we've gone beyond this kind of minimal set of doctrines that should define the basis of our unity, right? You've all heard this. I'm sure you've heard this, right? Okay, so there are groups that have said, ah, that bar is just a little too low for us. We need to take it up a level. We need to throw in non-resistance, something about divorce and remarriage. You know, you can add on more and more things to that. And that's fine. Uh, and, and I would certainly agree and the importance of those matters. But in general, I will say that you can push and push on this, let's call it more doctrinal or theological type of unity foothold. And it's it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Okay, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. One of the things that we would all agree, and I want you all to know this very clearly, that I, I, I don't believe it is possible to have unity with, with those who deny the resurrection, for example. That, that is not a viable path forward. But neither would I say that that is sufficient as a basis of unity. And, and so, as important as those things are, we need to talk about the next level of unity, which is practical. Okay, so I'm gonna read to you for some passages straight from the New Testament here that indicate how, for Paul, at least the abstract world of theological truths, which are very important, the incarnation, atonement, all those things, very important, but that's not enough, at least for Paul and the 12 apostles. Okay, so I'll read to you a verse here. If anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. That's 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen. The context is head covering, which actually doesn't matter for this discussion here. But what he is getting at here is there are certain practices that if you want to even argue about, you're not part of the churches of God. Later on, a different issue set, which I'm not even going to talk about here, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. He says, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Notice that phrase, as in all the churches of the saints. And this actually has to deal with how the meeting is supposed to function. It's very, very practical levels of order here. It's not theological. Listen to this one. This is a fascinating one. You you might not have noticed this one before. This is 1 Corinthians 16. Notice this is a lot of 1 Corinthians here. Uh, Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that, they be, that there be no collections when I come. Okay, so we can read over that very quickly. But did you catch this? He says, he gave orders to the churches of Galatia. Okay, so Galatia is modern day Turkey. And he's writing to Corinth, which is modern day Greece. So they're far away from each other, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And he's saying, I gave the same instructions to the churches in Galatia that I'm giving to you which is to collect money on the first day of the week and to lay something aside for the purposes of benefaction to the churches. Okay, so Paul here wants there to be such a level of commonality that he's giving details about what day of the week he wants people to be setting aside money, which he wants to be common between the churches in Galatia versus, and the churches in, in Corinth. Another one, this is Philippians one twenty seven. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I love that verse. Okay, so he's saying, whether I'm there or not, I wanna hear that you're standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, fighting together, for the faith of the gospel. Okay, so he's picturing here the Philippians as being like this army and he wants them to be fighting together for the gospel. So this is a great test. True unity, you could actually you should actually be evangelizing together in a non-competitive way, right? So if there's actual biblical unity, you're fighting as one man. You're fighting as one person for this common cause and there's not this letdown Or the sense of like, oh, I can't believe he or she went to this church. And like, what happened? What's going to happen to their beliefs about this and that? Like, oh, no, what's going on there? And I think many of us know what I'm talking about here. When David, who is composing Psalm 133 here, David, we know, was a great warrior. He was an amazing warrior, one of the greatest warriors in the history of Israel. And I think when he sees all these people streaming up the, 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 the path to go to Jerusalem, he's thinking, this is my army. This is my army, and I'm gonna make them fight as one man for my cause. This is a man who is consumed with the essential nature of unity because if you are in the military, boy, you better believe you care about unity, right? There is no way in the world you're gonna ever succeed as any kind of military commanding officer if you don't have deep unity in your, in your ranks. Okay, so we talked about theological, we talked about practical, relational. This is, this is all throughout the, the New Testament. I'm actually not going to spend too much time reading passages here, but I'll just, I'll give you a couple here. Uh, in in uh, Philippians 4, there's two women, Iodia and Syntyche, that are fighting, and Paul tries to get them basically to be reconciled and work together. Also in Philippians he says complete my joy this is Philippians 2 complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. He wants them to be humble and serve one another and not be competitive. This is from Peter, 1 Peter 3:8. Finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart and a humble mind. Okay, I would make the case that Psalm 133, brothers dwelling together in unity is also relational unity. Like people who can actually live together and not bite and devour one another. In fact, the signature of the Christian life is this type of relational unity. Jesus does not say, by your miracles, the world will know that you are my disciples. Nor does he say, by your preaching, the world will know that you are my disciples. What does he say? Yeah, by your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. It's this relational unity that he is striving for. It's all throughout the epistles. Fourth, and finally, the fourth dimension of unity is organizational. Okay, so I said theological, practical, relational, organizational. We see this as well when they have concerns about this question of should the Gentiles be circumcised or not. They have some kind of official gathering in Jerusalem. They have representatives of churches to come together so that they can, there can be an organizational unity so that all the churches can have the same policy about this particular doctrine. They don't just say like, oh, everybody decide what you're gonna do here. Yeah, you Corinthians, yeah, you go for it your way. You're gonna figure it out and the Spirit's gonna guide you. That's gonna be beautiful. And you you in Antioch, oh, the Lord is gonna guide you as well. Uh, and we're just gonna trust and, and, and believe that the Spirit will lead. Okay, all nice sentiments, but they actually do it much more formally than that. They convey a formal counsel in order to work through this matter. One of the great chapters on unity, Ephesians 4, this this chapter that talks about uh, the the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, an amazing chapter, and Paul gives these four ones, uh, sorry, these seven ones, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all these, these, these ones that he gives there, and what he, what he prescribes in order to get this unity here is the apest, uh, organizational structure, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher there, right? He, he realizes that sentiments and good wishes are important, but you need more than that. You need a level of rigor at the level of organization and governance that involves all of these gifts operating in harmony there. We've talked about that at length in other messages. I won't touch on that now. Okay, so, so this is the type of unity that we need to strive for. Theological, practical, relational, and organizational. All right, I'm gonna give my third point, which is that biblical unity is unity to Christ and his body. Biblical unity is unity to Christ and his body. Okay, so it is possible to have a degree of unity in, say, a company, an organization, or a club, or a family, or or what have you, and not actually experience biblical unity. You can be united in sin. Okay, so Herod and Pilate were united. They were united in opposing Jesus, but that's not biblical unity here. What Jesus says in John 17, very famous passage in John 17, 20 and 21, he says, I do not pray for these alone. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Okay, so I hope you caught that they also may be one in us. One in us. So us there is Father and Son. Okay, so Jesus here is praying that their unity would be one in the Father and the Son. It's not one just sitting out here doing something apart from Father and Son. And I think there's actually something very profound in how Jesus expresses this this concept here. He, he, He makes a high statement. He doesn't just say here, I pray that they all agree. I pray that they all get along. I pray that they all like each other. He says, he prays that that we understand and that we experience oneness. It's almost as if Jesus believes that his people are to be one body. I think of the line in Ephesians 5 where Paul says, For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Right? It is ludicrous to hate your body, or for me to hate my thumb, or for me to hate my spleen or my liver. It doesn't make any sense. And... What Jesus is saying here is I want them all to recognize and to operate in a oneness as if they were one body. I, I, there's a there's a verse I was I was looking at this and I was I was checking it and I I double checked it just to make sure it was it was correctly translated and it actually is. It's Zechariah speaking in Luke chapter 1 and he says as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. And it's very striking that he doesn't say as he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets. Zechariah uses the singular word mouth for his holy prophets. Isn't that interesting? It's like he conceives of all the prophets as being like one body with one mouth. Fascinating. Uh, I think that's an anticipation of what Jesus is, is, uh, is praying for here. So what David does in verses 2 and 3 of the psalm is he gives analogies for what biblical unity is like and his first analogy, his first choice to describe this unity, is the oil that was used to anoint the high priest. We won't look at this passage. It's a a very interesting passage, but in Exodus 30, there's a recipe. There's not a lot of recipes in the Bible, but there's actually a recipe in the Bible for this precious oil that's described here. Okay, so this is an oil that has a lot of cinnamon in the oil. Okay, it would have been a Lovely oil to smell. I, who doesn't like the smell of cinnamon? So this oil was so precious, it was so sacred, that it actually says in Exodus 30 that nobody's allowed to make this recipe. Nobody's allowed to compound this particular formulation of, of oil and spices uh, in their private setting. It's, just, it's only supposed to be reserved for the tabernacle. And... and uh, it's because it was reserved for the priest. It was a sacred oil, and it communicates this oil of sanctification. It communicates the oil of the holy priesthood. It's very hard for us to understand how precious oil was in that time. We are a society that's awash in oils, and we have, like, way too much excess here, and so we don't really appreciate how incredibly life-giving and special oil would have been, especially this precious oil. This past week, in, in the office that I work in, they ordered all this food, and of course, the food that gets eaten the least is salads. But there was a beautiful salad that was laid out in the, in the, in the kitchen area. And I thought, you know what, this is just not going to get eaten. I'm just going to take it home with me. And there was a little bo- bottle of salad dressing, next to it, and I, I grabbed the oil, the bottle of salad dressing, it was like an Italian type salad dressing, and I got oil all over my hands, and I was like, oh no, great, now I gotta go wash my hands, and soap them up, and if I touch my computer, I'm gonna get oil all over it, what a mess, and, and then it happened again when I got home, I touched it again, oh man, I can't believe I got oil on my hands, like this is terrible, and, and, and so again, like I have the typical sort of modern aversion to oil as being messy and not particularly something special that I at least think about. That's the exact opposite how how it was regarded in the ancient world. The ancient world oil was expensive and valuable. I, I challenge you to try to make your own oil. Like get some olives and see if you can how much olive oil you can get out of collecting your own olives. Not easy. Very, very difficult. What what verse two pictures here is this oil that's poured on the head And it flows down Aaron's face, it flows down his beard, and then it flows down his garments. And it pictures abundance. The word that came to my mind when I was reading this was the word cascading. I just picture oil just flowing down and and just the beautiful scent of the cinnamon filling the room as Aaron or the high priest was being anointed there. Of course, we know that this psalm, as essentially all, if not all, the psalms represent types of the New Testament. Jesus, Christ, Christ means anointed one. And Jesus is the true high priest, the one who was anointed by the Father. And this picture of Jesus being anointed with oil, flowing down his head, flowing down his beard, flowing down his robe, the aroma filling the room, is a beautiful picture for us. And David sees in this picture of abundant blessing on the high priest as being, as being a picture of the unity that they have, as they rally around their king, as they rally around their priest. And, of course, for us, rallying around Jesus, our king. My fourth and final point is that God will assuredly and abundantly bless biblical unity. Verse 3 says talks about uh, it says it is like the dew of hermon so the it is unity so unity is like the dew of hermon descending upon the mountains of zion for there the lord commanded the blessing life forevermore so hermon is the tallest mountain in all of israel it's actually no longer in the current state of israel but in ancient israel hermon was part of israel the mountain is more than 9,000 feet in height, so that's a, that's a significantly tall mountain, especially by New England standards, and that mountain, to this day, is covered with snow, uh, and it is a mountain that the snow melt comes down, and it flows into the Sea of Galilee, and it flows into all of these streams and rivers, and it gives life to much of Israel, Here it says, it's a little bit obscure exactly what is meant by this. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What is this talking about? So again, I see a picture of cascading. I see a picture of overflowing. Do you you get that sense of this this heavy dew, this heavy um, uh, flow of water that goes down into the the rivers and the, the streams of Israel. Again, we have, as especially those of us who live in, in cities, we have often the wrong picture of dew. I myself will confess, uh, and especially this time of the year when it, it goes below freezing at night, when I come out in the morning, I look at my car and it's often like covered with all this like ice because the dew has frozen and I'm like, oh no. I got to get my scraper, and I got to go scrape my car, and I'm like, ah, this dew, ah, dew, 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 why, why do we have this dew, right? But again, completely wrong perspective, because I'm not thinking along the lines of how people, especially who lived in a dry climate, like Israel would have thought, for them, dew would have been life-giving and essential for their whole agricultural society, so what is this talking about here? So it is saying here that again, this, this, this picture of, of unity is something that starts in one place and it flows and it, and, it, and it goes forth and it creates life and beauty and life and flourishing, cascading down throughout Israel. And it's very interesting that it says, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So where's the there? there is the antecedent, mountains of Zion. Zion is, of course, Jerusalem where the temple is. And what, what David is saying here is that for, for there in Zion, this place where David rules as king, where the high priest is stationed, where you have this oil of anointing, where you have the dew flowing down from the mountains of, of, of Mount Hermon flowing, he says there God is going to bless God is going to command a blessing, which is life forevermore. Okay, so there's a great verse that I think captures this very, very well. Okay, this is an obscure verse, but it's one that I'd like you to to look at here. It's gonna be the last verse that we look at. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. This is the New King James that I'm reading from here. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Okay, so the translation here is a little bit awkward. Become complete uh, is, uh, is the word katartizo. So this is the word that's used for restoration. So like when they mend their nets, they're, they're completing or they're restoring their nets. That's the same word here that's used. Be of good comfort means comfort one another. So he's saying like, restore one another, comfort one another, be of one mind, live, it, live in peace. Okay, so he's saying here, strive for this unity here, which is, to me, it feels here like it's mostly relational unity, right? He's talking about comforting and, and restoring one another. And notice what happens if the Corinthians are willing to do that. Do you see the the logic of this verse? I hope you catch it, because it's the same logic as Psalm 133. He's saying, if you live in peace, the God of love and peace will be with you. Okay, so the promise here is, if you live in peace, God is going to bless you. Okay? This is what David is saying in Psalm 133, that if there is unity, God will command the blessing. That's the basic essence of what is being stated in verse 3. We, we don't have time to unpack this in great detail, but I will say that if you look in the early chapters of Acts, the pinnacle of unity that we see in the New Testament, they become this conquering army that God is blessing with miracles, with conversions. It is a beautiful sight to behold. I think, in the interest of time i have I have several more points on how to actually achieve unity. I think i 'm actually not going to talk about this i 'll save this for some other message either here or at Oakland Street. I have four points on how to actually achieve unity, which I realize might be a little bit of a bummer to have set all this up and not get to that but i 'll leave it as a cliffhanger for now. I will say this as i as I close the message here that and actually let me let me just reiterate first what what I've been getting at here so far. So I talked about the importance of, of unity and how we live in a, in a time of great division. We, we live in, a, in an era of desperate need for, for unity. I mentioned that biblical unity is visible for the world to see. It's a behold word. It's something that we ought to be able to point to and, and see and bask in. I mentioned that biblical unity is theological, practical, relational, and organizational. I mentioned that biblical unity is unity to Christ and his body. It's in the Father and the Son. And finally, I mentioned that God will assuredly and abundantly bless biblical unity. So as I said, maybe next time I'll talk about how to achieve this unity. But I will say this. As difficult as it is to sometimes... Stay, stay a believer that this is going to happen. I believe with all my heart that there is going to be a movement to achieve biblical unity that is doctrinal, it is practical, it is, it is relational, and it is organizational. As much as I see sometimes, like, is this possible? Is it possible? Is it possible? As much as I see my own failures, and I, I'm a very optimistic, uh, ideal, idealistic person, and I, I want to believe and hope that this can happen in my lifetime, and I still do believe that, but I will say here, and this is this is with uh, this is borrowing from the words of Woodrow Wilson: I would rather fail in a cause that someday will triumph than to win in a cause that I know someday will fail. That this is something that I am deeply, deeply committed to because I know that it is going to, to prevail at, at someday. And and those of us in Followers of the Way, uh, particularly those of us who are who are who are leaders, I know we are very committed to unity that spans all those levels. We're not going to be fooled by the division of definitions of unity and settle for anything less than the full picture of what God has for unity. There's so much I could say about achieving unity here, and again, I'll have to save that for next time. But again, I will say I would rather fail at a cause that someday will triumph than to win at a cause that I know someday will fail. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you that you will triumph that Jesus, you right now are at the right hand of the Father and that your enemies will become a footstool for your feet. And though there is much at play in the world of, of the flesh, of, of human preeminence, of copying the world of satanic opposition, the divisions that we have seen and that persist, I know one day will all be vanquished where we can rally together as one army under our king and our priest. Father, help us to not lose this vision, but to press in to unity at all of these levels. I pray, Father, that we would not lose heart, no matter how bleak the hour may seem, but that we would instead gain strength as we look at your word. And I pray, Father, that we would experience more tangibly, more palpably, Uh, an inside-out unity, starting with our, our homes, our local congregations, and congregations beyond our local congregation, that we can achieve this unity that Jesus prayed so earnestly for on the night before his death. We pray all these things in the name of the one who is one with you. Amen.